You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. This morning we're going to be week two into our series called Summer in the Psalms. The Psalms are uh, a great gift to us as believers. It's been said that they not only speak to us, they speak for us. And so as you read the Psalms, and sometimes you can't articulate what's happening in your own soul, you read that and go, that, that's exactly it. That's what I want to say, and now I know how to say, because the psalmist has said it for us. Well, Psalm 73 is is where we're going to be looking this morning. And Psalm 73 is one of my absolute favorite psalms in the entire book. And when I was looking at this and trying to decide... Which psalm am I going to preach? I was only going to get two of these before leaving, because next week at this time I'll be in Switzerland, God willing. Uh, so someone had to go, someone had to suffer, so Monica and I are going to go. Um, we'll be there, and, and Michael, well, Brandon's going to preach, and then Michael will preach the rest of that. And so um, Psalm 73 is one that I could not miss, because for one, my own soul, I just wanted to meditate it, on it again and again. If you've heard me preach much, you know that I reference this psalm over and over again. It's the one that I go to when I am upset. I don't know if you've got a go-to psalm in your life, one that you go, man, when I'm really feeling worked up, anxious, threatened by something, someone, this is the psalm I go to. Well, this is it. If you don't have one, you have one now. This psalm speaks about doubt This psalm speaks about suffering, and this psalm speaks about the great treasure of your soul. And I just so want you to hear this from the voice of this man, Asaph. Asaph is David's choir director. Okay, so he is the choir director in David's court. I don't know if that means much to you, but I can tell you this, that in his time and in his place, he's a very important man, an important spiritual leader. And so what he is writing is almost like looking into his prayer journal and finding the journal that was entered by him at the time when he was most worked up, most uh, frightened, and he came through it. And I, I, I want you to hear this, that these breakthroughs often come at, in the middle of a breakdown. You're going to have seasons. You're going to have times when you look up and wonder, does God hear me at all? Is God listening to my prayers? Does he care about my life? Because as I'm praying, I feel like something is really off. The things that I've believed about God and my circumstances, they're not adding up. They're not lining up. And I can't make sense of the songs that I'm singing on Sunday and the circumstances, either external or internal, on Monday. Is there room for Christians to doubt? Absolutely. Is there a place for you to say, God, I'm not sure I believe this right now? Absolutely. I didn't know that. Somehow I felt like if I had fears and doubts... I better submerge them deep into my soul because I didn't want to say them out loud. Well, we have a God whose love is strong enough to handle our greatest doubts, 
a God whose love is more stubborn for you than your love and grip on him. He will not let you go. Okay? What he began in you, he will see to completion. And you're going to have moments when the fog descends on your heart, when the fog and, and the doubt and fear descends on you, and you're going to wonder if you've made a mistake. You're going to have doubts. Well, you're not alone. This great man, Asaph, also had doubts, also had fears. And he's going to explain why he had them. He's going to explain the darkness of that valley that he walked through. And then he's going to tell us what is the great treasure that he walked out of that valley with. And so here's what I know having done this job for a while. Some of you are in a dark valley right now. You can't see it because you can smile and say good morning like the rest of us. We can do that. But inwardly, you're deeply, deeply wrestling. You feel very alone. You feel very scared. Okay, God has got a great word of truth for you today. There's others, you just came out of that season and you're glad and you don't ever want to go back. Well, friend, enjoy that. <laughs> there are seasons of just enjoying the still waters and the green pastures where God just wants you to rest and enjoy that. And there's some you're on the front end of one and you're trying to figure out how to reverse and get out of it and how to go back and how to uh, navigate your steps so you don't have to suffer. Everybody walks this path between here and heaven. And so I want to ask the Lord that he would speak to you today through this great psalm. Pray with me. Father, I just want to say thank you for the group that is here today. I thank you for Redeemer Georgetown. What a amazing gift it is that you've given us to be a part of this brand new body of believers here in Georgetown, the fastest growing city in America for two years in a row. God, I thank you for this. This is your work and we're grateful. Lord, I know that what I'm trying to do this morning is beyond me. It, it requires you opening the eyes and ears of your beloved flock so that we could hear your voice, so that we could experience your love. I pray that you would empower us to hear you today and that you would let us know that the great treasure of our soul is Jesus Christ and that we would love him and cherish him at such a deep level that it would just be satisfying to us all the days of our life until we come home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 73 starts like this. Truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. Let's just stop there for a moment. He starts off with the truth that all of us would agree to. Surely God is good to Israel, to the chosen people of God, to those who are pure of heart. I know this is true, but I tell you, one point in my life, my feet nearly stumbled and I nearly tumbled off of that great mountaintop truth that God is good. I had a moment where I did not know if I believed that, is what Asaph is saying. Now this would get you to lean forward and say, this ought to be good. Because he's writing it in retrospect. It's kind of a risky thing for him to write. I know God is good. But there is certainly a time when I started to question and doubt that. He tells you why. He says that on his journey, 
verses 3 through 12, he started to look around and he found himself looking at things that didn't add up. Listen to what he describes as the reason why he almost stumbled and fell. He says in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's not a put down. That's a, they were svelte. They were strong. They looked, they looked healthy. Their bodies were fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Now, what's he saying? God, if, if they're wicked, and by contrast, I'm not, and you're not hitting them with bolts of lightning, why not? I mean, why are you letting them get away with it? They, they aren't even trying to be good. They're clearly wicked, and yet I see them moving right along. They don't even have pangs until the end of their life at death. And in his mind, that's just not right. Were any of you kind of raised like this, that if you're doing your quiet time or you're sharing your faith or showing up when the church doors are open, and you, as I did in fourth grade, I threw away my KISS records. I mean, come on, that had to be the most noble act of a fourth grader ever was God. I'm done with these guys. And it was a big sacrifice for me. I'm telling you, man, I loved those guys. I had their individual albums, their solo albums. I had, I had it all, you know, but, man, I got saved, and, man, I was done with that nonsense. You ever kind of feel like that, that maybe you did this, therefore, God, you're going to do this? It's, it's really a contract. If I do these good things, you'll see them and respond and do me some good things. And so you kind of go about offering God your nobility. You could say it this way. You offer God your religious activity, your do's and don'ts that seem to make sense in your mind. And because of that, you kind of have this sense of, well, where's mine? It's a, it's a contract. It's not a covenant. It's a contract. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And that's what's going on here. A lot of us are kind of raised like that because we are raised to understand our identity through merit. Merit. If you perform well in school, you get good grades and you probably even get recognized for having these good grades. You perform well in athletics, you're going to get your letter jacket, right? You're going to get recognition because you performed at a high level and when you don't you're going to get recognized for that whatever the equivalent of a dunce cap is you got to wear it because you performed poorly and so you kind of understand this merit-based identity and Christianity is uniquely different from that your identity is formed in the merit of Christ but Asaph doesn't know that and so because of that he looks around at the wicked and says why are you letting this happen? Why are you allowing this? Their bodies are fat, they're sleek, but not only that, they're not in trouble like other men. They seem to get away with it every time. They're not in trouble. And then verse 6, it gets worse. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Pride is their necklace. It's what they adorn themselves with. A sense of, I don't have to answer to anybody. Their eyes swell 
through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak of malice with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongues strut throughout the earth. See now, here's where it got really bad. They don't just talk violence and speak violence and oppress people, a real bully. They then flaunt it in God's face. They have a sense of saying something like this. Okay, you believe in God, well, where is he? Is he going to stop you or stop me from clobbering you right now, from taking what's yours? If there's a God, well, why didn't he show up and do anything about me? Now, I don't know about you, but I was raised in such a way that you would step three paces back because the lightning might strike, (laughs) right? Like, get out of the way. This guy just took on God, not just me. And so Asaph's in a real quandary here because look at what he says in the next one this is a kind of a a troubling verse it's kind of it's kind of hard to understand verse 10 it says therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them meaning you kind of got a point like i i can't make sense of what you just said and i can't sense make sense of what god's doing or not doing so they find no fault with them and then they say this how can god know is their knowledge with the Most High. Meaning, maybe he doesn't see any of this. Maybe he's not watching. Maybe God has gone on vacation. He's gone on holiday, which is what the Jews in the concentration kept. They could not understand it, so they said, well, maybe he's just left. He'll come back eventually, but right now he's on vacation. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're a... If you're a spiritual leader in the nation of Israel and you've just said all this, it feels like a disowning of everything you've been proclaiming your whole life. I remember when my daughter, my oldest daughter, was uh, fourth grade. She came, she sat down in my office and she said, Dad, what if this whole thing is bunk? And I said, what whole thing? Well, Christianity. What if, it, what if it's just something you believe because your grandparents taught you this? And what if it's, you know, not true? And I remember saying to her, I'm so glad you just said that. I've been waiting for you to say that. I've been waiting for you to wrestle with whether or not the Christian faith is just something that I believe because I like it. Or whether it is actually sturdy, solid, factual truth based in history. And I told her that day, it's okay that you have this question. And believe me, your hardest questions to come will be met with the solid truth of Jesus Christ. It will be okay. And we started into Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And we started looking at it together and asking those questions together. And her faith was really formed in those days. And it was great. But look at what Asaph says. So you can see the descent that is going on in his mind. You can see that he's struggling, right? It says, uh, all day long, or pardon me, I need to back up to verse 12. uh, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Everything's going their way. And then look at this. This kind of peels back the real curtain here of what's going on. This is the darkest moment in his valley, okay? Listen to what he says. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. 
For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So what's he saying? He was empty. You know, vain means empty, right? If you got a vanity mirror, you sit in front of the vanity. I don't know if they still have those. My grandma had one of those. Like you sit in front of the vanity mirror and you primp. And it's the, the emptiness. You sit in front of the vanity, the emptiness mirror. It is empty. And he says, all in vain. It didn't pay off. I opened up the obedience box and I found that it was empty. I thought you were going to give me a bunch of stuff. I thought that if I obeyed, you would send me on my way with lots of good things. I look up and it's the wicked who are prospering. I thought that this meant that you owed me, God. And I found that it was empty. Maybe I made a mistake being stricken all day long, rebuked every morning. You know what he's saying? I knew there were things I wanted to do that were wrong. And I restrained that in me because I knew that it dishonored God and I wanted God to bless me and so I didn't do these things, right? I was stricken. All, my conscience was telling me no. And because I obeyed it, I walked around like this saying, God, come on. And I found out that it was empty. Let me pry into your life just a little bit right now. Do you feel like God owes you something now, some of you are thinking, yeah, he probably owes me a, a woodshed, like an experience. I've been doing bad. <laughs> I've been awful. And, I, and I, yeah, he kind of owes me that. I know what manner of sinner I am. And because of that, yeah, I feel like he owes me the divine spanking that is coming my way. Worse, maybe you're thinking, no, I deserve hell. I'm sure of it. But there's others that are sitting here that are really thinking this. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. Remember Chad Ochocinco when he dropped a couple balls in one of those games and he goes, man, if God's going to do me like this, because he didn't catch the, the touchdown. He's like, I've been trying to be good. God didn't even let me catch a touchdown in the Super Bowl. I'm like, you're mad at God because you, like, you're a millionaire. Like, <laughs> seriously? You're mad at God and gonna if he's gonna do me like this, I'm not sure if I'm gonna follow him. Well that, that's kind of where Asaph is at. So let me ask you this: why do you obey God? Why do you do what you do? Do you know your motivation behind your obedience or your motivation behind your disobedience? It's worth thinking about, it's worth praying about. There are people that want to obey God. But it's not because they have a deep love for him. It's not because love and gratitude for what he has done has motivated obedience. It's because you absolutely think that if you do this, he'll be on the hook. You'll get the next promotion. You'll get included in the club. You'll get the cute boyfriend, the cute girlfriend, whatever it is. Because you and God are on a trade system. And that's where Asaph is at. And there's no way for him to break through that but to walk through this valley. That's why the doubts come. Do you remember John the Baptist? 
He proclaims when Jesus shows up and he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He proclaims and announces Jesus for who he is. But then when he's in prison, he sends word and he says, will you please go back to him and say, are you the one who we thought was coming or should I look for someone else? Why does he say that if he knows this? Uh, Because he's in prison and he's scared. Because he's in a, a spot he never imagined that following Jesus would lead him. And he started to doubt, did I get the right guy or should I look for someone else? Well, friends, listen to this. We suffer in this life. We suffer. And in that suffering, we have doubts. Is it safe? Is it okay to bring your doubts, your fears to God? It's the only safe place. It's the only safe place for you to take your doubts and your fears. Psalm 62, verse 8. Pour out your heart before God. He is a refuge for you. Pour out whatever's in there. Lay it bare in front of him. Say to him, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't like it. I don't want this in my life. I don't like this season. I don't like how this turned out. This, in fact, is the worst thing that I could have imagined would happen. You don't have to pray some prayer that sounds like, well, I I mean, God, I love you and I worship you and amen. You know, that's, that's just a plastic prayer. You are safe. His love for you is great enough for you to just go ahead and be honest. And by the way, he's not learning anything about you. He already knows. Well, that's what Asaph is doing here. Look at what he says here in verse 15. I find this to be a really important verse. He said, if I said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. Well, what the heck does that mean? What he's saying is the wrestling match he was in in his heart and his mind, he couldn't say out loud. Because if he said it out loud, a bunch of people who look up to him as a spiritual leader would go, what? You? I thought you were like advanced theology and faith. I didn't know that you had doubts. I didn't know that you had fears. I didn't know that you had moments like this. So Asaph says, I was in this mess and I couldn't even talk to anybody about it. There was no safe place for me to go to say, this is what's happening inside. And so I just had to sit on it and I couldn't share it. And you know, one of the things you're either going to love or hate about the way I and Michael preach is that we just kind of pretty transparent. (laughs) For better or worse, you're going to hear the struggles of my Christian faith. I feel like it's good for me and you that I say to you sometimes, yeah, I got real struggles, real doubts. The question isn't whether or not I have them. We all have them. It's where do you go when you have them? And so look at where he goes. He said, but when I thought to how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I couldn't figure it out until... I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Sitting and stewing over this dilemma and this struggle was going to get him nowhere. He was caught until he went into the sanctuary of God. And then he could sort it out. Then he could see what he couldn't see before. So here it is. My great hope for you as a Christian and for this church is that really you start to pray. You don't have to be good at it. 
But when you face the storm of life that is beyond you, it's bigger and more complex than you can sort out. It's, it's trigonometry and you're kind of a fundamentals of math type of guy. Okay, this is beyond you and you can't sort it out. You have a place to go. Talk to God. Come into the presence of God. You don't have to have fancy words. You don't have to have well-framed uh, starting points. You come into the presence of God and say, yeah, <laughs> that's Greek for here it is, right? I said this before and I'll say it again. Some of my best prayer times start off with these words. I don't really want to pray right now, God. I don't feel like praying. And as I'm walking around my kind of three blocks right out in front of my house, a lot of times the first 30, 40 seconds are, you know, I just don't even really want to talk right now. I don't, I just kind of want to walk. I don't want to pray. I don't want to do this. Inevitably, I feel the Spirit of God gently saying, why not? What is it? Why do you not want to talk about this? And before I know it, I'm just pouring out the reason I don't want to pray. And then I look up, and I'm 100 feet down the road realizing, I think I'm praying. <laughs> it's a good starting place. Sometimes we would, if we were honest with God, we'd say, I don't love you, but I want to, want to love you. Put the want there in me. My heart's gone cold. I don't really want to pray. Would you put the want for prayer in me? Give me a desire to pray. Give me the will to try. Because he says, when I came into the sanctuary of God, then I could understand it. And what does he say? I perceived their end. Whose end? Well, the guys that he was looking around at and saying, why do they get away with everything? The guys that he was envious of. He looks at them and says, now I perceive the truth of their situation. And what does he say? Verse 18, this is the, if you want to say it this way, this is the fruit that comes out of his suffering and his doubts. This is the good thing that God gives him. He gives him perspective. He says, truly, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakens, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When you look at somebody that seems to have it all on Facebook or Instagram, don't believe it. <laughs> don't believe it. We all put the best of our vacation or the best of our family life up there we take out hold still because this is like the one sane moment in our family click okay go back to fighting y'all because i gotta put that one on facebook right i mean we put we tend to put what we think looks pretty good up there because you know that's just what we do we put our best foot forward well, guess what with god there is no need for that and he says when we look at this people that we're envious of you're looking at their outsides but I can see their insides. Don't ever judge your insides by somebody else's outsides. Now, let me just say that again. Don't ever judge your insides, your condition, when you look at somebody else's outsides and because they're smiling and happy in that moment, you think, my life stinks. And I've been trying to obey God. 
I mean, they've got perfect teeth and hair and kids and marriage and all that. They get, uh, get, and look at my pathetic life. See, that's the enemy of your soul attacking your identity in Christ. Don't ever be tricked by the outsides when God is the one dealing with your insides. So Asaph's in the middle of a breakdown. Everything is imploding on him. It's, it's falling down, and he is coming to the solid ground. And what does he see when he gets there? They're in a slippery spot. They're in a slippery spot. Their foot could fall at any given moment, and they could tumble from where they are. They're not really secure in that moment. They're insecure. The weight they're putting down on that board could fall apart at any given moment. And just in a moment, like waking up from a dream, the reality of their condition will hit them. So here it even gets better. Verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish, ignorant. I was like a beast in front of you. He's looking back to the moments when he was just complaining and angry and shaking his fist at God, and doubting God, and blaming God. He says, I was like an animal in front of you. I didn't act like a child. I didn't act like someone who has received mercy. I looked, and I was pointing the finger at you, and I was angry at you, and I was lashing out like an animal in front of you that doesn't know God. I just want my food, and I want it now, right? So he says, that was me. But if you write in your Bible or circle in your, or highlight in your Bible, highlight the first word in verse 23. Nevertheless, when I was acting like that, and I had a whole season of acting like a fool, raging, blaming, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. See, this is one of the great, beautiful truths about our Lord. His love for us is an eternal love. He saw the whole story of you from eternity past. He saw your great moments. He saw your terrible moments. He saw your raging and your backsliding. He saw your worship. He saw your sacrifice. He saw the whole story of you before there was one single day with you. I am continually with you. Your right hand holds on to me. It's kind of the picture of his strong hand, right? He's got you. He's folded you up, and you are secure in his grasp. And you're going to guide me with your counsel, and then after I die, you're going to receive me to glory. I I have to tell you about a book I just read that I've so loved. Leo Tolstoy, I was telling Ava about this this morning. The Death of Ivan Illich. There's this great short story where he talks about this man. It's right after Tolstoy got uh, saved. And so he tells this story of this aristocrat who has achieved pretty much every station in life. And then he gets sick and he, he dies. Obviously, that's the name of the book. But how he dies in faith shocked me. It just so warmed my heart to see that what he was saying was this. God, you're going to walk me through the valley of the shadow of death. 
you're going to see me through. You're going to counsel me all the days of my life. And then you're going to bring me home. And death will have no mark on me. And as he dies, he dies in faith. And he hears the own rattling of his, uh, his uh, breath in his lungs. He hears his last breath and he goes, what was that? Because he didn't even see it or feel it. And him, he was already in the presence of God. And I just go, oh my gosh, what? So here's the great lesson that comes out of this psalm. This is the, the payoff from the valley that he walks through. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is thy strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful. But listen to this. As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. The best thing that he gets was not that he could be rich like these other people. He says, you know, the best good in my life is that I'm near you, God. I'm near you. I'm rich because I have a deep fellowship with God. Having walked that terrible course where you were brutish like a beast in front of him, yep, yep, that's the God who loves me. He loves me for the worst and the best of me. He loves me in spite of me. It's not a contract with him. It's covenant. You are safe in the hands of God when you have doubts, when you have fears. You're safe to bring them into His presence. You're safe to say to Him, I look around and I can't make sense of what you're doing. I don't like some of what you've done in my life. There's plenty of things I've said to God, this wasn't exactly how I thought this was going to turn out. You ever feel like that? I mean, when I was dreaming of what this was ultimately going to look like, it didn't include some of these things. Surely you've been there. Okay, He has a purpose even in those defeats. He's using those defeats He's drawing you in through them. And if you will not hide yourself from Him, if you will draw near to Him, even when you don't feel like it, even when you don't feel dressed up enough for Him, you're not on a first date with Him anymore. You don't have to pretend. You can, you can be you. Without the makeup, without the whatever. You can be you. He already knows and loves the real you anyways. Behold, those who are far from you will perish. What good is it to be rich, to be wealthy, to be, have all this stuff if at the end you go to hell? I mean, if you perish, what good is that? But for me, it's good to be near God, to make the Lord my refuge, so that I can tell everybody how good you are. 